0: let's read these uh, these two verses in mark chapter 6 and then we will uh, will retreat a little bit and read a little bit out of mark 3 uh, but first mark chapter 6 starting in verse 7 verse through verse 13 and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread no bag and no money in their belts Wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if you place and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, who were sick, and healed them. The Word of God. Let us retreat a bit to Mark chapter 3. This, these verses are the culmination of Mark chapter 3. If you remember, Jesus gathered His disciples around them, and that's what happens in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. that is the twelve, verse 14. And He appointed twelve, and He also named apostles so that they might be with Him, and then he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. the core of of the message tonight is based in this verse and the in mark chapter six, the stuff I just read is the culmination of this. so Mark gathers these twelve intimate guys around him in order to live with him to disciple them to be with him to allow them to see what life is really like, and then he sends them out to preach, and then he sends them out to have authority, and that's exactly what happens and so this is like spring training is now over, and it's time for the real games to start. I'm going to send you out, and he sends them out two by two. And so let's dig into to what is exactly happening. Four things that Mark sends, or that Jesus sends these people with. And before we get into that, I want to restate the, the point of what the book of Mark is about. We are walking through this this. Uh, museum on the life of Jesus. And Mark is quick-hitting different things. And we are in the midst of, of how he has sent them out. That's where we're, we're going to land here for the next couple of weeks. And the, the heart of it is just quick-hitting uh, images of Jesus, the, the title of the series. And what's happening here when Mark is writing this, to the people that he's writing this to is Christians that are in Rome who are, uh, it's illegal by, by punishment of death Christians are dying every night on sticks and being set on fire. That's how Christians are being killed as we uh, during the time in Rome that, that this book is written. And so, courage is trying to be poured into by Mark about Jesus and, and who he was. So, what are, what are the four things that Mark sends these people with? First, in verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. So, basically... The first thing he sends them with is with explicit authority. He's given them very explicit authority. He said, you're going to have authority over the unclean spirits. They've seen Jesus heal people. They have seen Jesus cast demons out. All these things come together. And now Jesus is saying, you have been around me for the last six months so that you can see what I'm teaching and see what I'm doing. And now the power that's been in me, I give to you. So he sends them out with a very explicit authority. And go back to the the first part of of verse 7 there. And he called the 12. He called them to himself. The whole life of Jesus that he's been living up to this point in his ministry life is this. He gathers a crowd and he speaks to them and meets their needs. And then his goal, once he's with the crowd, is to get alone with his disciples. That he can show them what life is like and show them what he's trying to... Here's the stuff that I was teaching these people, and now I'm going to give you the keys. It's the same thing. And so he's always about gathering crowds, and then he's about retreating with his guys, with his boys, with his 12 people. And then once he's with them, he's about retreating so that he can be with God. So he's being with people, and then he's being with his, his apostles, and then he's being with God. Three distinct things that he's always trying to do. Now, the Im- implicit thing that this being, they're being sent there is that he sends them discipled. And he called the twelve and began to see them. And so he he has discipled these guys for six months. As we walk through this Jesus museum, we've seen Jesus gathering crowds and getting alone with the disciples and getting alone by himself. And I said before, the spring training is over and now it's time for them to go and do. They have seen Jesus heal people. They have seen him cast out a demon like we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the the, the herd of pigs that the legion went into and they've seen all this stuff happen and they've, they've watched Jesus interact with them and they've seen Jesus teaching very boldly and very distinctly. He sends them out, disciple them. We'll talk more about that as, as we continue on. And then the third thing that He sends them out with, He sends them dependent. I'm going to read verses 8-10 through 10 again and see the dependence upon God. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, he charged them to take nothing for their journey. Remember, they're being sent out in pairs, two by two. So you're going out with one other person and he charges them to take nothing for their journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, and no money in their belts. They're going out to a hostile world in a hostile situation with nothing but dependence upon God, trusting in the explicit authority that Jesus has given them and the implicit discipleship that he's given them and now they are dependent upon God those two things, but they're to wear sandals and not have on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. They're going into a town and anyone who receives them, they're going to very boldly say, God has called me to come to this town and I'm going to stay at your house and you're going to feed me and you're going to give me shelter and you're going to clothe me and provide for me in return for me proclaiming this message of repentance and, and me healing and casting out demons. So they're very bold in what they're saying because of what Christ has said. I want to retrace here and and give a little bit of of practical application for us in this age, in this life, uh, to depend upon God. The three audiences that are are in play here. The first audience that's in play are the disciples themselves. They're being told to go and live live a life that is uh, to go and, and speak and preach and heal demons. So they are to depend upon God for their provision for their life. But more importantly than that, who marks... Intended audience is the marks. Intended audience is Roman Christians who could be killed for being a Christian, and teaching them to understand that through all things, Christ is the one who they can depend on for everything. For them, in this particular situation, it's physical needs for now. And these people, the Roman Christians, it's intense for them to know and understand that they can completely depend upon God. And then finally, the 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 third third audience is, is us, modern day, where we are reading it here and understanding that when Christ gives us a mission, he has provided. Look again at, at verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Imagine the, the boldness that it would take for you to walk into a strange town and with strange people and say, God has sent me to you to speak to you, to preach repentance to you, and he's told me that I'm supposed to stay at your place. The boldness that's there. But understand what the disciples understood. When God has called you to a mission, He has provided all that you need to accomplish that mission. Rest in that. God has prepared a way, and God has provided. Understand every word of that. God has sent you on a mission, and God has provided. He has prepared the way for that mission to take place. And I hope in the last few weeks you've heard me talk about vision, you've heard me talk about mission, Heard me talk about the fact that God has something very purposeful for you. He has brought you in front of the friends that He's brought you in front of the family, all of the all of the the community the community that surrounds you. Your friends, your church, your work, all the environments. God has sent you to those places, just like He has sent the disciples to the places that they're going. And understand that God has prepared the way for you, and He will provide for you. Trust in that. Trust deeply in that, and trust deeply in the fact that. Mark's people that he's writing this to, he's communicating this thought to, are people who will be, most likely, people that are reading this, will one day be impaled on a great stake and sent ten feet off the ground and set on fire so that Nero can have his orgy parties and have light around it. That's exactly what's happening here. And these people, who eventually, this will one day happen to them, the mission that they have has been completely and totally provided for. Take heart, take courage, take effort in in your mission the fourth thing that he sends them to he sends them with a mission and their mission is is twofold it's to proclaim and to serve verse 12 so he went out and proclaimed that people should repent we'll come back to that in a second spend most of our time tonight thinking about this this message of repentance verse 13 and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. So basically, they're sent out. Their mission is to proclaim the message of Christ, repent, and to serve people, to, to see what they need and and come through on it. Heal people and cast out demons. That's what they were sent out to do. And we can take perfect illustration, perfect application, that we have a twofold mission to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and repent, to proclaim a message of repentance, and to serve people. That's what... I talked about during the welcome time and, and I'm making announcements. There is a desperate need, desperate plea in our area for food banks to, to work. And this is a place for us to serve, to live out our mission, to be Christ to these people. And as we do, proclaiming the message of repentance. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking and thinking about what repentance looks like. And, and I want you to, for the rest of the night, forget what you think you know about repentance and move past, uh, an understanding that you think you have about repentance, and let's look deeply at some things and some items about repentance. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus claims, repent and believe the gospel. In Peter, says in Acts 2, repent and be baptized. John the Baptist, in Mark 1, he says, repent at least once. He says, repent over and over and over again. So the message of the disciples, the message of Jesus, and the message of John the Baptist is, repent. The message throughout the book of of Scripture is always about repent. So let's spend the last time that we have together tonight talking about this understanding of repent. Again, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus, his proclamation, the thing that he was always about proclaiming is repent and believe the gospel. Um, I've, I've consulted a bunch of resources this week and I'm going to quote several of them the, the web addresses are in the bulletin of, of two great sermons. One is by Charles Head and Spurgeon, a guy who lived in the, the 1800s. Another guy named A.W. Pink, who died about 1955. And then the third one is an article written by Tim Keller. All three of those are all about repentance, and they're all fantastic. And I encourage you, the the two sermons by Pink and by Spurgeon are are pretty lengthy, but they're absolutely valuable. Read them and read them closely and read them slowly. They're not audible sermons, they're readable sermons. And read them closely and it will enlighten this understanding of repentance. And remember, repentance is not just some religious word. It's not a word that I want you to remember anything you've known up until this point, but instead come to grips with what true, gospel-centered, biblical repentance is all about. So those, I hope to get those links up on the website very soon so you won't have to, to copy and paste them or whatever perfectly. You can just click on them on the website at the bottom of the page. Hopefully that will be there uh, sometime tomorrow afternoon, evening or something. Uh, but let's get into to this understanding of, of repentance. Um, this, I, I want to, to separate this misunderstanding that guilt somehow is the end of repentance. So many times what my mind, my religious indoctrinated mind goes to guilt. Whenever I think about repent, there's a huge, 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 overwhelming, the, the biggest thing that comes to mind when I think of repentance is, is guilt. I feel bad for what I did. I read Psalm 51 and, and I see David and, and all that he thinks about, all that he thinks through, and it's, it's full of, of guilt when I, when I come with my presupposition that repentance is all about guilt. At the end of the message tonight, when we talk about all that repentance is, we're going to read Psalm 51 and see that it's so much more than guilt. It's, it's, re, guilt is such is so, like a tiny portion of what it truly means to repent. Uh, I've heard it said, listen to one, I'm talking about listening to, to, to pastors, listen to the preachers. Listen to one, and you're a clone. Listen to two, and you're confused. Listen to many, and and you are wise. So I want to bring forth to you great preachers of the modern day, great preachers of the, of the past, that have expounded upon Scripture and understanding what this concept of repentance is. But before we get there, I want to bring to, to mind the, the idea of gospel-centered repentance. And, and it comes from this verse, Acts 7, verse 18. Gospel-centered repentance comes from from this verse, and a few simple words. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And before we get into the heart of what this verse says, let me tell you the, the background. Paul has just gotten in the face of Peter. Paul, the gospel bringer to the Gentiles, the guy who's preaching repentance to the Gentiles, has gotten in the face of Peter because Peter was, was hanging out with, kicking it, and preaching to Gentiles, and then the, the Jewish people came, and, and said, wait a second, you're eating with these sinners, you're eating with these Gentiles, you shouldn't do that. And so Peter stopped hanging out with these these Gentiles. And so Paul confronts him about the sin, and Peter repents. And this is uh, the, the end of that. Paul speaking. And when they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Basically, Peter has has been embracing these Gentiles, and then when the, the religious people come along, he decides, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna win your favor instead of theirs, and so I'm gonna shun them. But ultimately, this message of repentance that leads to life is for everyone. This simple phrase, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I want to bring out two Greek words that are here. First, the word for grant here, granted is a Greek word called Didami. It's used 376 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. 376 times in the New Testament this word is used. And 346 of those times, it's some form of the word given or give or gave, depending on conjugation of it. 346 times it's translated as as given or gave. So this is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift, a grace of God. Next word to, to think about is this word actually repentance. And this word repentance is the word metaneo. Metaneo. And it's, very, it's two simple words that you've probably heard before and understand what they mean. Meta and neo. M-E-T-A and N-E-O. These two words coming together. And meta is to change the structure of something. Metamorphosis is metamorphosis. The morph is the structure of something. So meta is to change the structure of something. So meta simply means changing. So many times we've talked about repentance means you're walking this way and now you turn around and walk that way. You take 180 degrees towards your sin. That's a little bit right, but there's so much more to it. It's changing, which is what that definition is talking about, but there's so much more to it. And neo is to perceive or understand with the mind. So metaneo, repentance, actually means your mind undergoes a change. And again, go back. We have this understanding of what metaneo means, repentance. Your mind undergoing a change. So it it has some properties now, and later it has different properties altogether. Your mind thinks in a different way. That's what it means to repent. And that's the message that is, that is being proclaimed. Jesus, John the Baptist, all the disciples walking around saying, change your mind. Think differently about religion. Think differently differently about God. Think differently about what, things, what is supposed to be happening. And understand the, the culture here and that Judaism and, and the Judaizers and all these religious people are trying to pound upon you rules, 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 rules over and over and over again. But the message of Jesus Christ is change your mind about what you think about the gospel. Change your mind about what you think about religion. That's what's being changed here. Repentance, Repentance. Your mind undergoes a change. This is a proclamation of Jesus and John the Baptist, and it's a process that was given as a grace by God. Go back to this verse again, and God has granted repentance. He has granted to you, given to you, this ability to repent. It's not something we do of our own. It's a a gift, And, and Acts 5.31 talks about it, how God gives repentance as a gift. You can try all you want to repent, but if we truly repent, metaneo, we truly change our minds, it's a grace gift from God. Meditate, wrestle with that, and understand that guilt is imposed upon us and we want to change because there is guilt in us. And guilt leads us to want to change on our own. Repentance is a gift of God. It's a grace gift from God. Think about that. Chase the the overwhelming guilt nature of, of religion-centered repentance. And understand that repentance, true mind altering, changing, thinking differently about God, comes as a grace gift from God. God gives us a changed mind, and then the last part that leads to life. That's the gospel. Repentance leads to life life that is glorifying from God. Life-giving. I have come to give you a full life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So much of repentance is, man, I really want to do these things, but instead, I'm I'm not going to do them because I feel guilty about it. But gospel-centered biblical repentance is I am so focused, so understanding, and knowing that these things that, that are not right lead to death these other things that are about God, full-centered repentance leads to life. The 95 Thesis written by Martin Luther, which the the whole Reformation, the, the Reformation of the entire church hinged upon the 95 Thesis written by Martin Luther. And the first words that Martin Luther writes are, Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life Of believers to be one of repentance. So many times I think about this whole idea of of gospel centered this or gospel centered that or whatever is, is a new idea, a new concept. Martin Luther died in 1546, and he's talking about repentance that leads to life. He's talking about a gospel centered repentance. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that our entire lives, the entire life of the Christian, is about repentance and continually, steadily, always having a change of mind. Think through this understanding. Forget about what you think about repentance and go back to this metanoia, change of mind, understanding. Our whole lives, our whole existence are about changing our minds, our sin patterns, our flesh, our minds in that way, what to move towards pleasing self, what to move towards selfishness and pride. And not towards humility and God-centeredness. And it's it's a, a whole mind change in all of our lives, continually, daily, minute by minute, over and over and over again, are about repentance. And the, the whole metamorphosis of the church hinged upon these first words from the 95 thesis from Martin Luther. Uh, Tim Keller writes this. But in the gospel, the point. Of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. It's a little longer, so let's walk through it again. But in the gospel, the point of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. repentance, as with all other graces, as with all other gifts, their their purpose is to take us into a greater, deeper, more profound, more intimate relationship with God. I got a chance to talk to a friend of mine this week who, who grew up in the church and, and has sort of abandoned it, and, and he his, basically his mind walked open, and, and he embraces all sorts of, of religious doctrine, all sorts of understandings, all sorts of thoughts. And, and I, I've been in conversation with this guy about broken relationships. And the he, he was talking about how Christians can be on board blindly with the Republican Party all the time when they embrace torture tactics. And, and Christ wouldn't embrace torture tactics. And, and he's talking about all this stuff. And, and, and I said, made an argument about that, but, but ultimately... The point is, is that relationships around this planet are broken. Even the people that we love, we have broken relationships with. I love my wife dramatically, but we have brokenness in our relationship all the time. We have to work through it because there's a fracture in us. At the, the core of my sinful, selfish nature is a desire to please self, a desire to be proud and, and, and want for myself. And that causes brokenness of relationships. And and with, with even some of you guys, from time to time, the break in our relationship tends to happen because we have a fracture in us that wants to please ourselves. That's sin. But God has come to restore that relationship. He brings graces. He brings gifts to us to bring us to a place where those relationships become restored, and most notably, the relationship that we have with God. Do you understand that the gifts from God, the purpose of them, All of them are to bring us into restored relationship with God and with man. When we understand repentance as not a a religious activity, but more a gift of God for the purpose of restoring relationship, for the purpose of restoring life, it it takes on a deeper meaning, a a more understood meaning, a, a more, there's a greater desire in my heart to follow it, to desire it, to see it, to to experience it because it leads to life. The point in the gospel of repentance is to repeatedly tap in to the joy of Christ. That's what repentance is all about. It's not for you to wallow in your guilt, to wallow in your pain or wallow in your sin. It's to bring you to greater, restored relationship with God and with man. That's what repentance is about. John Calvin, who died in 1564, says this. A true... Ki- it's a hard word to say. I've practiced all week and failed. The point here is... The point of repentance is here, a multiplication of the flesh, and a vivification of the spirit. I did pretty well that time, didn't I? Vivification. And that word vivification is just raising it, shining a light on it, bringing it to a greater life, making it more vital. Its existence is, is more purposeful. So the point of repentance is to put to death ourselves, put to death flesh, and rise up his, the, the gift of Of the Spirit. So repentance is death to the old man, death to the sinful man, and a gift to the repentant man. Grace gift, grace filled repentant man. Uh, Mark Driscoll, a contemporary pastor, says this about repentance Do not religiously repent. Religious repentance repents with religious motive so that God will help you, help your works righteousness. It seeks to use people, use the church, and use God. Basically, I'm sorry, now give me what I want. This is what religious-based repentance is about. Guilt... So much of my relationship... I My kids this. I teach them how to religiously repent. Here's what I mean. Uh... Cooper hits Hannah. Cooper wants... He wants dessert, and he hits Hannah. And I say, I'm not going to give you that until you tell Hannah you're sorry. Based repentance. I'm going to say that... I want. Do you see where... where we so often... in the midst of our guilt, in the midst of, of being overwhelmed by our sin... And, and circumstances beginning to crumble or and crush us we say to God I'm sorry now give me a great life I'm sorry God now allow me and my wife to have a better better relationship with my boss so that I can succeed at work I'm repentance is about. But it's not about getting from God. It's about getting to God. That's what repentance is for and what it's about. Charles Spurgeon, in the sermon link to in your bulletin and will be on the website. The sermon that, that I'm going to quote from is the most fantastic thing that I've ever read about repentance. It will... Rock your world and, and light, give you a, a deep understanding of what repentance truly means, and it's it's all about Acts eleven eighteen that we read earlier. Repentance is a grace gift from God that leads to life. Charles Spurgeon said this, and by the way, Spurgeon died in eighteen ninety two. These these thoughts are not new thoughts; these are two hundred year old thoughts. Repentance is the act of salvation of the soul. The germ which contains the essentials of salvation, which secures them to us and prepares us for them. Let that saturate into your brain. Repentance is the act of salvation of the soul, the germ which contains all the essentials of salvation, which secures us to them and prepares us for them. This understanding of gospel-based biblical repentance is the, the germ. And by germ, it's like a, you plant a, a bulb in a, in a well-soiled garden. It's going to come up in, in spring life. It is the thing that life with Christ begins with. Life with Christ begins with this understanding of repentance. And it's not just, okay, I'm a sinner, and now I repent, and now I'm a Christian. It's, a, it's all the time all the time happening. The germ that leads to the flower, that leads to life, that springs forth and brings forth life. Repentance is the act of salvation of the soul. The germ which contains the essentials of salvation. Go back to, think about a little bulb and they it's, it's a small little thing of, of dirt. It's, it's a smaller than a tennis ball, a tiny little bulb. And within that bulb are Everything that's necessary to spring forth a brilliant, strong, fertile tulip or or some sort of flower—it's it's, all—it's—it's—it's it's, it's beautiful, and to, to see that process that happens, and to to think that this this small, dirty, tiny little thing can spring forth such glorious beauty and and point heavenward, and and, and elicit things in our brain to to make us think of, of beauty, to, to remind us of, of love, to remind us of God, to remind us of all of these things spring forth out of this this tiny, small, dirty, nothing to look at sort of thing. And this is the picture of the gospel that springs forth. And repentance is that germ where all of of what's needed to bring salvation, all that's what's needed to to encounter relationship with a perfect and holy God is found in repentance. And then the last thing that Spurgeon says, repentance is a grace. And church-based repentance and self-based repentance. It's a gift from God. And it's something that we need to, to, to push towards and remind ourselves of and beg of, allow me to repent. Spurgeon continues to say in that sermon, dwelling upon the ultimate grace, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, and dwelling and thinking all the way through that. That is, thinking about the sacri- when you're thinking about repentance, when you're dwelling on repentance, to dwell upon the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. Meditating on it and hearing the shrieks of Jesus. My God, why have you forsaken me? Hear those shrieks when you are thinking of repentance, when you are dwelling on it, when you are begging of God to give you the grace of repentance. Meditate, dwell on the shrieks of Jesus. My God, why have you forsaken me? The sorrow and life that's found in that moment and that man on the cross is the grace that leads to repentance, which leads to life. Let me say that again. I stumbled over it the sorrow and life that's found in that man on that cross is the grace that leads to repentance and leads to life. There is a hint of sorrow. There is a hint of guilt that's found in repentance. But there is a huge, Close uh, with a, a very practical application of how to repent in a gospel-centered way. Um, this comes from the the last note that's there, the last resource that shows up and show up on the website It's from uh, Keller's article talking about how to repent. He, he gives several different. Ilust- this is how you you gospel-centered repent when you are prideful. This is how you gospel-centered repent when you are anxious. And here is Keller's understanding of how to repent in a gospel-centered sort of way when you are anxious. Cowardly avoidance of hard things for me. Before we continue, think about something that you have been that I've been... Her mind, mind goes, think about something in your life that you are anxious about. And instead of being anxious, because Christ tells us to not be anxious about anything, but instead present all of our requests to Christ, to God, as in petition. We are not to be anxious. So think about what you're anxious about. Consider the free gift until there is no cowardly avoidance of hard things. Since Jesus faced evil for me. You don't have to face evil. Christ has already done. Until, do that until there is no anxious or rash behavior. Since Jesus' death proves God cares for me and will watch over me. Think about what and understand death. That God cares for you and does watch over you. Think about that statement. It takes pride to be anxious. Because it's all about me. Pay attention to me, it's all about me. You go. And calmness and strategic boldness. Think about the cross in, in light of whatever you're anxious about. And think about the grace gift of God until whatever it is that stresses you out pales in comparison to man dying on that cross. So oh, you're overcome with calm thoughtfulness. And understand, as we talked about before, that the mission that you have in front of you, the thing that you might be anxious about has been placed there by God to teach us to rely upon Him, to have dependence upon Him. God has marked out your mission and God has provided for you the means to get through that mission. Don't be anxious. Rest upon Him. Repent in a gospel-centered way. I'm going to read... Psalm 51 for us. And think about this whole thought of what we think about David. And David has just committed this ultimate sin. He's been a guy fighting a battle on a war for his army. And he's got a wife that's back home who's hot. And David uses his his power to come and, and sleep with her, commit adultery with her. And she gets pregnant. And so David brings back his, her husband from war so that he'll sleep with her, so that everybody will think this baby that's actually David's, will, everybody will, will know, will think that it's, it's Uriah's, Bathsheba's husband. And then he won't do it, and so David sends him out to die, to be killed. So he's dead. David commits adultery, and he commits murder, and this is the response, the repentant response of David. Imagine if you did something approaching that. but the grace gift of God is the repentance that leads to life that is Psalm 51 have mercy on me God according to your steadfast love repentance focused on God or steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is before me Against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what's evil in your sight so that your words may be justified and blameless in your judgment. Think about the the concept of the the things that we've talked about and what repentance means. That it's not just to get God to do what we want Him to do. It's not, I'm sorry, so do this for me. Instead, it's, God, I throw myself at your mercy. Verse 5, behold... I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I. Let me hear joy and gladness. Please. Ask me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of relationship with you. That's the point of repentance. Verse thirteen. Then I will ch- and dress, trans <laughs> sin <laughs> guilt out of my salvation will declare your praise. The result of of all of this repentance is restored relationship and David saying, I praise you, God. For you do not delight in sacrifice. You don't delight in guilt or I would give it. You don't delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken... In- do good, Zion, in your good place." Paul's of Jerusalem. And here what I want us to to end on and listen to and learn from, then will you delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings? Then will bulls offered on your altar. This is the point of rela- of repentance is that we would have restored relationship with Christ. It's not about guilt, it's about the gospel, it's about the cross, it's about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Perfect and holy and wonderful God, I thank you for the depth of what you've spoken to my heart this week, God, and I pray that you would impact us with the repentance, Father. And this is not just some word that religious people throw about God. This is your message. Your word tells us that Jesus came to proclaim the message of repentance. That John... Proclaim the message of repentance. That Peter proclaim the message of repentance, God. Allow us to come to grips with what it means to repent. And then teach us, give us the ability to repent well, God. Give us the ability, give us the grace to repent deeply, God. Give us the, grant us, as your word says, the repentance that leads to life. Give us that life. Give us that restored relationship with You and with man. Allow us now to respond in ways that are accepting and pleasing to You. In Christ's name, Amen.